This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to Hugo Carmen from Sweden, and he is without a doubt the best open source researcher when it comes to SVB IEDs, which are basically suicide car bombs. Hugo specializes in researching the design and tactics of ISIS SVB IEDs, most specifically in Iraq. He's written an incredible paper on this and he's going to tell us why the suicide car bomb attacks are also referred to sometimes as the poor man's air force. This episode of Popular Front is sponsored by thedefensepost.com, defense with an S. It's a great publication reporting on war and conflict all over the world. So Hugo, I know you're not paid to do any of this, yet you've produced what is, you know, probably the best work there is out there on ISIS SVBIDs. Uh, firstly, can you explain how did you get involved in all of this? Okay, so uh, the story kind of begins uh, after I finished high school, and uh, you know this conflict with IS or ISIS is, you know, it's heating up. But uh, one of the most interesting parts for me was uh, the videos they posted. Because um, when you look at their videos, uh, you, you have to get their perspective on it. You, know, you have to understand what type of weapons they're using. For me, what stood out was uh, like the heavy use of uh, car bombs or SVB IDs. Uh, you can say car bomb, but SVB ID is the most accurate term. So anyway, they use suicide car bombs a lot. And... Uh, that really got me interested, and so I started looking online, I started searching for all information about it that I could find, but to my surprise, like, nobody had written anything about it other than, like, superficial fluff pieces about it. It's like, oh yeah, these uh, Mad Max-style vehicles and, you know, explosions, it's like just a couple paragraphs, nothing too deep. So... In the end, I got so frustrated that I ended up taking, taking it upon myself to really write something that I would feel satisfied with. And the article is The History and Adaptability of the Islamic State Car Bomb. Yeah, The History and Adaptability of the Islamic State uh, SVB ID or Car Bomb. It's uh, my first article and by far the longest or most in-depth. You know, you, you got to stay... Um, humble but it's for me the the best most logical explanation for how how the use and like the design how everything about SVB IDs or car bombs how it fits together it's not something uh, abstract that's really impossible to understand but because if you look at it you end up seeing patterns and how things are related and how some things will trigger something else mm, sure and can you talk a little bit about the history of the car bomb? Uh, like historically speaking, when you, when you say car bomb, someone would think, oh yeah, it's uh, like a civilian vehicle fitted with some sort of explosive device and then either driven by a person or parked somewhere. In any case, it would be used in like a civilian environment against civilian or military targets. You know, that's the, that's the like historical use and the historical definition of it. And that's how it's always been used up until the, the war in Syria and Iraq, for the record. That's where it started. The reason why people used uh, 
I call them covert SVB IDs, the, the nondescript civilian vehicles that have been fitted with an, you know, a large ID. Yeah, there's that bit at the start of your article, the, uh, the graph, and I think it says a compact sedan can take like 200 kilos of explosives just in the boot. Yeah, exactly. If you look at it and you go further down in the charts, you'll see like, uh, like a semi-trailer can carry like 28 tons. It's uh, insane how much explosives larger vehicles can theoretically carry. The, the effect something like that has is insane. These uh, covert SVB IDs, uh, they were only used in historically low, low intensity, you know, insurgencies. It's conflicts where the armed group that uses these uh, bombs, they're, they're not in a position to uh, fight like a regular war against uh, their enemies. And their enemy is always uh, the one that has you know, the bigger guns and controls all the territory. So, for example, like when the IRA set one off on Canary Wharf? Yeah, def definitely. That's, uh, that's the only reason, because, because they don't have territory which they can mount, like, all-out assaults from. They have to blend in with the environment. And when you have something uh, as big as a car bomb, you have to make it look like a civilian vehicle so that you can blend in with the civilian traffic and get to the intended target before it detonates. So the tactic is kind of like uh, pretty sneaky, like trying to blend in uh, and look as any other normal vehicle before you detonate. And uh, I mean, this, this te technique, it's really difficult to counter. There's no foolproof way on how to defend an object against an attack like this. Sure, you can put up like uh, large fences and uh, walls and everything, guard towers. But if you have multiple car bombs, and this is, you know, this has happened in Iraq. You have first a car bomb that goes after either a checkpoint that guards a you know, bigger building or a compound. The first SVBID, you know, it takes out the, the checkpoint and then you have a second car bomb which drives through and hits the main targets. So you can like many times, uh, you have, you'll be seeing like multiple car bombs used in the same attack. So they use one to clear out the way, and then the second one to go in and cause the real damage. Exactly, it's uh, pretty insane. For me, the the focus is on, uh, especially Iraq, and later Syria and how it's been like developing since uh, the start of the Iraq war in 2003. Before the US invaded Iraq, there had been no car bomb attacks whatsoever. Actually, uh, the, first, the first time a car bomb was ever used in Iraq, it was uh, only a couple days after the invasion began. I think it was in northern Iraq somewhere, close to Kurdistan or somewhere in that region. But, you know, it was pretty See, relatively quiet if you compare to how it's been looking in the past few years. But 2003, 2004, it started building up before, I think it was like 2006, 2007. That's when it really peaked before uh, declining again until the U.S. withdrew their forces. But, I mean, during all of these um, years, during the Iraq War, car bombs, it was used... Uh, a lot. I mean, it's, it's the favorite weapon of choice of all these militias. 
I mean, uh, these type of groups, they're always, in, they're always at a numerical disadvantage. They're always technologically and militarily not as, you know, they're not on the same level as their opponent. So they have to have some type of weapon to even the game, you know, to get on the same level as their opponents. Many people have used this, uh, like, uh, comparison. It's like the poor man's Air Force. You have, like, a, like a guided bomb, which you can, you know, a large amount of explosive. You can, you can detonate it anywhere you want, theoretically, with a driver. So, wow, so people, you know, people call the, uh, the suicide car bomb the poor man's Air Force. Exactly, due to, like, how accurate it can be. And how accurate have they been? Like, what kind of destruction have they caused across Iraq and Syria? I mean, in the beginning, uh, they started targeting, uh, like, first it was the aid organizations, the United Nations. They, I think they even killed the guy in, in charge of the UN in Iraq uh, in one of the car bomb attacks at the UN building in Baghdad. And all the different aid organizations, all the different... Um, how do you call it, different departments of government, governance, all official buildings representing like the Iraqi state, the federal police, everything related to um, the, you know, the federal government and the coalition, everything was targeted like systematically. If you had like, a, uh, let's say a police building in some Iraqi town, and they uh, advised for new police positions and a lot of people showed up because they wanted a job. Of course they would have a car bomb sent there and they killed like 100 guys before they would even be able to become police officers. Before I talk about that, there's uh, a, two different types of car bombs. There's the car bomb which is driven by a driver and then parked at a target or at a route that the target is going to take. And then the driver leaves and it's detonated remotely or by some sort of sensor near it. Um, that's like the, you know, it's not really, I wouldn't really count it as a car bomb. It's more like a large static IED made to look like a car. But, you know, it's the, when you add a driver that detonates the bomb itself when he's driving the car, that really adds another level. It allows... He can choose himself the like the most optimal point of detonation, and that's why um, when you have a remote control bomb, it's never as efficient as if you have a driver driving it and choosing when to detonate. It essentially becomes a huge bomb on wheels. Exactly, and when it's disguised as a civilian vehicle, the target doesn't have a chance at all. I mean, if you man if you're manning a checkpoint, your job is to stop the vehicle and. <laughs> like uh, talk to the driver but you're it's like it's too easy almost for the people executing this type of attack because you can't change uh, how our society look you'll always have cars and there's there will always be groups that are willing to turn them into rolling bombs it's near impossible i'd say right to stop one of these covert ones i mean if you don't have some kind of you know, prior knowledge that they're coming. I can't imagine there's any way particularly to stop them once they're kind of in their area when they want to destroy it. Yeah, I mean, there are some ways. If you, theoretically, I mean, this is, 
could be a sign of something else. It doesn't have to be that it's a car pump, but if you notice that the vehicle is sagging in the rear, you know, if you notice that it's carrying a lot of weight, it might be an indication of something. That's one of the things uh, that they used in Iraq. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, well, more so I want to talk about ISIS's use of these suicide car bombs. When did we start seeing them really, you know, utilize them on the, the battlefield? Yeah, this is uh, one of the most interesting things that I think it's like the reason why you have the situation like it is today or it was a few years ago is, uh, you know, if you go back to, like we talked about, we had the covert car bombs during these insurgencies and in Iraq, they were used extensively. Like uh, in 2005, there were like 900 reported, uh, you know, the parked car bombs where the driver goes away. Uh, like no, almost 900 in just 2005 alone. And uh, I know that during the entire Iraq war from 2003 to 2011, there were around 900 confirmed. That's with double sources on each one of these attacks. Like 900 confirmed uh, SVB IED attacks. After like 2006, 2007, towards 2008, like the, the attacks, they began to decline. And, uh, you know, it's due to a number of reasons. It's like uh, the coalition, they were arming and funding these like you know, the Anbar Awakening Councils, giving money and weapons to tribes to fight against uh, the insurgents. Like the number of American troops also surged in 2007. And, uh, Oh, and yeah, also the U.S. signed this agreement which set the final date for when American and coalition troops were to go away from Iraq. All of these things you know, contributed in some way to the number of uh, suicide problem attacks declining. After the U.S. withdrew, the insurgents just had to bid their time, you know, just wait. Because in 2008, when, when the you know, they set the final date for when American troops were to withdraw. They're just giving, you know, a date to the insurgents, like, oh, yeah, we'll just lay low until then, and after that, we'll just, you know, it's a clean slate, start fresh again, and see what happens. But after the U.S. withdrew, uh, the attacks, they did start to go up again. In, like, 2012... Uh, IS or ISIS, they used uh, around 400 car bombs. The year after, it was 800. That's combining parked car bombs and suicide car bombs. So the, the attacks began to pick up. And uh, this is when Syria begins to, begins to play a pretty big role. Syria, like when, when the Syrian government began to lose control of the country, and uh, they couldn't really control all the different corners of the country. IS, they began to go across the border to the rebels, you know, under the pretext that they were helping them fight against Assad. But while at the same time using these lawless eastern Syrian areas to, as a staging area for their future offensive into Iraq. So IS, they went from like an insurgent group to uh, like actually controlling territory. I mean, they were still collaborating with Syrian rebels. They weren't the exclusive force. You know, it, it wasn't the Islamic State yet, but they were beginning to 
their power began to increase. I remember this, this was a time they were kind of carving out a name for themselves more as state builders. I mean, obviously the worst state on earth, but that's essentially yeah. what they were planning to do. I remember at this time when it became more obvious that, you know, they didn't just want to blow things up. They wanted to control territory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, that's really when it began to change in from, yeah, between 2013 and 14, when, uh, essentially the Iraqi army just collapsed and, uh, ISIS, or IS as they would later call themselves, just swept across Iraq and Syria, just carving out this huge chunk of territory. I think at their peak, they were actually bigger than uh, Great Britain. I mean, I've been looking at their recent maps and uh, comparing them to in like 2014 and the beginning of 2015, when they were really at their peak. I think that was before Kobane. It really looks insane. It's like half of Syria and almost half of Iraq, just just all black. Anyway, in 2014, as ISIS, they were getting territory. They were the style of fighting, you know, because when you're fighting an insurgency, you're striking from the shadows. It's like hit and run attacks, IEDs. You, you fire a few pot shots and then you go away, slip away. It's just like. Uh, and it becomes like a whack-a-mole game for the ruling force, or the larger force. But when IS went on the offensive and they started like actually capturing territory, which they later controlled, this kind of, uh, you know, this, this type of insurgency fighting, it went out the window. And instead, what you saw was a type of uh, semi-conventional fighting. I mean... IS, they were starting starting to capture tanks. They were like military vehicles, artillery pieces, huge amount of weapons in all these warehouses in Syria and Iraq that they just captured. I mean, Mosul alone, in Mosul, IS, they captured, I think the number is 2,300 Humvees just in Mosul, the city itself. So, I mean, the, the amount of equipment and vehicles that they captured during this one-year period I mean, uh, it's really insane. They, they became an army. They literally became an army. Yeah, and I think a lot of people at the time really under, underestimated the, the sheer amount of, I mean, their capability. Of course, nobody can really match against all the world's air forces in, in, a, in, a, in a fight. But if we're, if we're talking hypotheticals, and if uh, all these forces on the ground didn't have the assistance of uh, foreign air forces, I think the situation would look a lot more dire today. Uh, I mean, you know, like IS carving out a bigger, even bigger piece of territory. Yeah, I mean, I think that was quite evident um, when Kobani happened, because you know the Kurds did an incredible thing in you know everybody ran in and helped and tried to fight and did a great job kind of pushing these guys back and stopping them coming in the whole way. But only yeah. when the coalition arrived and started to really strafe ISIS and blow them up with airstrikes, uh, only then did. You know, did it look like they would save Kobani at all? So I, th I think exactly. you're right, man. I mean, on their own, no one. I can't imagine anyone could have stopped that. No yeah, one in the area, anyway. Yeah. So you know, you have at that time, 2013, 2014, IS. They've become an army. They have huge amounts of vehicles, the tanks, all that. So they're not fighting an insurgency anymore. They're fighting more of a conventional war against uh, their enemies. I mean, the only difference in terms of available firepower for both sides it's uh, you know that the governments and the national militaries they have 
an air force or the assistance of foreign air forces. The way that, and that it goes back to this analogy of uh, the Pornos Air Force, but the way IS counteracted this air force uh, that the national militaries, militaries have is their own use of car bombs. To me, I think it's a pretty good description, even though it's been run into the ground in, by so many articles, but it's pretty accurate in a way. The big change when, when IS went from fighting an insurgency to a more semi-conventional semi war is that um, they weren't in the shadows anymore. They were like really out in the open. When they were using these covert car bombs, they were always uh, trying to blend in because the enemy didn't know that they were there. When IS captured territory, they started having like pretty clear and active front lines where on one side you had IS, the other side you had the Iraqi army. So it was a pretty clear defining line where each territory, you know, where the difference was. Myself, um, I remember being, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say shocked, but I remember seeing, uh, I was in Iraq and the Peshmerga were like, over there is ISIS and there's that road. And I was like, wow, so these guys have fixed positions now, you know, and I remember I think yeah. that was when it was like, oh, okay, they control this area, you know. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of a problem for them because uh, when you have clear front lines, the covert car bomb, it doesn't work anymore because the, the enemy knows you're coming because, you know, any car coming from that area would be ISIS, so it's just fire on it. So just sending covert car bombs away on these front lines would be a waste of resources. So the solution to this, uh, how, to, how to use car bombs in this new situation, it was to start putting armor on them. You know, there was, uh, I guess they would start welding really intricate designs onto, I mean, not at first, it was pretty crude, but huge st steel sheets mounted on the front of the vehicle, on like the front half, on the sides, on the front with a little like slat in the windshield so that the driver can see when he's driving. But essentially, and this is where the Mad Max analogy comes from, just a, a huge armored car loaded with uh, a large uh, IED. And what, what were those materials that were, they were generally welding to the front of these cars and, like you say, turning them into these like Mad Max looking things? Yeah, I mean, many people say, you know, this Mad Max vehicles, but from what I've found when I've researched is that they put a great deal of effort into designing these vehicles and like what type of armor to use and um, yeah how to mount it. It's like yeah, usually you have pretty thick steel plates and the thing here is they're on the front of the vehicle they're always almost always mounted at an angle you know when you mount the steel plates at an angle not only does it increase the effective thickness of the armor itself, it also works as a way to like ricochet incoming munitions, like, like small arms munitions, they might ricochet, or let's say a RPG round might also, not necessarily, but might also deflect off of it somehow. How much skill would that take? I mean, it doesn't sound to me like just anyone with a bit of mechanics skills could make that. I think uh, the skill of just mounting the armor, it's 
probably not very high. I mean, if you think about Syria and Iraq and probably how many car workshops you had there before, I mean, just welding a piece of steel onto the car is not such a big deal. But the way that it's done shows a great deal of understanding in how, like, you know, you can tell that they've been mass produced and like tested over and over again on the battlefield in order to see what works and what doesn't. Because, uh, you know, on the front of the vehicle, not only do you have, uh, actually on most vehicles, there's a small like viewing port on the driver's side of the vehicle so that he can see out. Some of the time they, they actually take like pieces of the side doors of uh, like actual armored vehicles that they've captured. They take the bulletproof glass and mount it in this viewing port so that the driver can look out while not fearing, you know, that this shot is going to go right through and hit him. So ISIS would sometimes, I don't know, say they blew up an Iraqi army Humvee, they would yeah. take the bulletproof glass out of that and then use it for the little peephole on their suicide car bomb? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not joking. <laughs> They're serious. And some of them also have, like, uh, it's like sort of like a sliding door that the driver can... Uh, it's like you have a normal viewing port, but then also you can slide over an, evil, uh, an even smaller view, viewing port, just a little tiny piece that you can look out of. So you can change from like a larger to the smaller, depending on like the amount of incoming uh, fire from the enemies. And who was designing these? Was there a specific, I don't know, jihadi abu mechanic or whatever? Was there one guy that was, you know, designing these things or was it a joint effort? From all the stuff that I've read, they're pretty meticulous when it comes to research and development uh, in, with their weapons, you know, IS. Uh, they probably, I mean, I don't know who, but they probably had some guy tasked with uh, designing the best armor for these car bombs. Because uh, from all the records and all the stuff that I've seen regarding, you know, all these drones found in Mosul, it's just really, really meticulous like uh, item requests that they, they want so they can build more stuff. And what kind of items would they request? For the drones, it's like, uh, I haven't seen one, one of these lists for the car bombs, but for the drones, it's all these different parts uh, so that they can make like mock-up drones that look like uh, commercial drones, like uh, quadcopter drones that you buy. But it shows that they have people that know what they're doing, that, doing, that, that, do, that are doing the work for them. They have skilled people in their ranks. If you look at like a typical up, you know, up armored car bomb, it would have frontal armor mounted at an angle, uh, the viewing ports, and also it, they would cut out slats in the front of the vehicle over the grill to the engine so that the engine wouldn't overheat from being under this metal box when it's driving. And they would, they would also have uh, huge like or not huge but small like half metal boxes mounted over the wheel wheelhouses protecting the wheels from incoming fire and what what we haven't spoken about is what was can you explain the insides how does the inner workings of the car bomb work when you talk about the payload usually what you have is a series of uh, daisy chained IEDs like connected together usually it's IEDs but sometimes yeah, I'm, I've seen a lot of uh, different payloads. It's been all from artillery shells, uh, unexploded ordnance, like huge 
American bombs like dropped from an airplane that didn't explode and ended up being used in a car bomb. Or like uh, like 50 anti-tank mines wired together. Or a combination of everything, you know, anything with an explosive charge. But most of the time it's uh, a bunch of IEDs. Placement is usually in the rear of the vehicle. I mean, you have the armor in the front which protects the driver and the vehicle, but it also works as a shield for the payload up until the driver detonates the vehicle. And this payload is connected to a wire that goes through, you know, through the vehicle to the front, where they have a number of um, like switches or detonation detonation mechanisms. This can be like usually, uh, you know, you've everyone's seen like a suicide vest. They have this like uh, I don't know what to call it, like a fuse. They just pull it out and then it explodes. Yeah, exactly, like a grenade fuse. Uh, a lot of the time you'll see one of these in a car bomb. You just lie next to the driver and you can pick it up and just uh, you know, pull this and it will like, explode. But in most of the recent car bombs, uh, I mean going back a couple of years, the pretty much standardized in all, all of the territories that IS use, they have a white box. On this there's a black button which is a safety. So first you have to press the safety and then you'll have sometimes one but usually two or three buttons and all these three buttons or depending on how many they are they're all like uh, switches you know if you press this, the button it will explode so first you have to press the safety and then the detonation button but usually you'll have multiple detonation buttons all you know wired on a different uh, wire so if one of the buttons doesn't work like I can just press a different one and maybe that'll probably work. I mean, sometimes to go to really crazy lengths. I've seen examples with like seven different uh, redundancies, like really just making sure like 100% that it will explode some way. So seven different buttons just to make sure if, if yeah. one doesn't work, the next one doesn't work, one of them's gonna blow you up. Exactly. I don't want to say it's like an art form, but it almost is. I mean, for example, I remember reading, uh, there's a book called Bandit Country, and it starts off explaining, it's about the IRA, and it starts off explaining yeah. one of the car bombs that went off, I think it's the one that went off on Canary Wharf, um, yeah. and the guys, the officers that investigated it, or whatever, uh, looked at it, and they just said, this, whoever made this, is unbelievably skilled, you know, obviously, they're skilled yeah. in a way that causes death and destruction, but again, you can't take away, that's a skilled piece of work. So I guess that leads me to think, what's the most intricate car bomb you've come across in your research? I mean, if you're talking about the inner workings, then it's probably that example. It had like, you know, first the, the safety button, then four different, uh, like it was sets of two. So four different buttons all connected on different wires. And then on the side of the steering wheel, you had a different button to the left. Then near the gearbox, you had a grenade fuse, and the guy itself, the guy himself, on top of the payload in the car room, he was wearing a suicide vest, so in case nothing else worked, he would just pull the pin on that one, so the whole, whole thing would, like, hopefully go up. Where was that, where was that detonated, do you know? Uh, most likely Iraq. I mean, 99% of all the higher-end stuff, all the good quality car bombs, they are from Iraq. And what kind of damage do these car bombs do when they go off? Oh, they do a lot of damage, but it's different types of damage. 
I would say the biggest damage they do is not material. The biggest damage is uh, like the psychological impact of uh, your enemy having this type of weapon in their arsenal. Because uh, I've watched a lot about this and all these interviews with people who have been on the receiving end of a car bomb. And, and I've seen the videos also where you see people or mostly you see like Syrian militias, like loyalist militias or like the Pashd al-Shabi, the PMU in Iraq. You see videos of them on the receiving end of a car bomb and people first they'll fire a few shots and then they start to realize, you know, this thing is not blowing up prematurely. So yeah, let's just run, you know, and when it does explode, there's usually a huge explosion. It's like the the pressure differences will scramble your insides. The the shrapnel will tear you apart. The explosion itself will just tear everything apart. Also, if you're not killed by one thing, you're you know you're killed by the other thing. Many people assume that just a fireball, when you're looking at a carbon explosion, the fireball itself is you know if you're standing within that, then you'll die. But outside, you'll be fine. But many I've seen hundreds of car bomb attacks and almost always you'll see it's pretty common you'll see some guy standing like hundreds of meters away and he's looking there you know popping up out on top of a berm and he's just looking there you know casually and then suddenly like a huge piece of the car just falls down from the sky and lands next to him like a piece of the engine or like a car car door just zoom go right past him or land right next to him Jesus yeah so the shrapnel I mean the shrapnel is a part of the car itself exactly I mean and when you add armor to the car it also turns into more shrapnel or shrapnel and where do they get all of these cars from because I do remember you were you'd actually managed I think you found what was it the garage or something like that in Mosul where they've been taking all the cars used in their their car bombing <laughs> campaign yeah, I mean, the, the type of vehicles they use is, is pretty interesting, I think. Because when, when, when I was writing my first uh, article about this, what I found was the, the most common vehicle was like a four-wheel four drive vehicle, like the, the pickup, pickup truck. They're versatile and they work in the environment. Yeah, so. They were like more Hiluxes in the Middle East than, I don't know, dogs, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. But I mean, they're reliable vehicles, so I can understand why they're used so often. But, I mean, there was a shift around the time of, or a little bit before the Mosul offensive. The most common vehicle went from the four-wheel drive pickup truck to the SUV. Suddenly, the SUV was the most common vehicle to use. Uh, I mean, I still don't understand why. It's something I really, I don't have an answer for it. I don't know why they just shifted away from the 4x4 vehicle to the SUV. I have many theories. I mean, uh, the most common vehicle in the Mosul offensive or the Mosul battle. I mean, during the entire Mosul battle, I think I recorded or documented in photographs or videos at least 200 separate car bombs. The most common vehicle, I think it was more than 100 vehicles. There were Kia, Kia SUVs. These vehicles were featured like at an extraordinary rate and at first I couldn't figure out why but then I started looking around and I found that in late 2013 
they opened like a Kia dealership in Mosul. So my theory is that, you know, after IS swept through the town, they, they captured the dealership also. So they, sor they source a lot of their vehicles from dealerships or they seize it from people who have fled or are sort of enemies to them. And there was a part in your piece, I remember, um, talking about APCs, uh, armored personnel carriers, being used as suicide vehicles. Um, why would they do that instead of just using them in battle? I mean, I think you're talking about like the BMP-1 and you know those Russian-type vehicles. I mean, they have built-in armor, so you don't have to take a civilian vehicle and add armor to it because it's already armored. Even if they already, you know, they also put armor on these vehicles as well. But uh, the reason why they might do that is maybe they want to hit a target that is especially difficult, and they want a vehicle that is maybe both an off-road vehicle that has enough armor so that it can withstand all the incoming fire until it detonates. From my research, I've seen, you know, I don't know how many dozens of, you know, 20, 30, 40 different BMP-1 car bombs or SVB IEDs. But the number of main battle tanks is like, I think, two or three. The difference is all these BMP-1 armored personnel carriers, they're not so good. When, like, when you use them in their original role, their armor is not so thick. Why would you use... Um, I mean, sure, you can use it in that way, but when you use the BMP-1 as a SVB IED instead of um, in its original role, I think it will have a bigger effect. Because you know they make their own armored personnel, personnel carriers. They use vehicles and you know self on armor on it. Using one of those is, you know, it's similar, almost the same. Also, it's about like the amount of vehicles that they've captured. When they capture military vehicles uh, and they they decide to use them as a car bomb, most of the time they're used locally. So like if you look at Iraq, almost. All of the Humvees and like M113 armored personnel carriers that IS captured there and decided to use as SVB IEDs, they were used in Iraq in almost the same area as they were captured. So like they captured like American vehicles that they knew they wouldn't be able to uh, like uh, provide maintenance for and run in the end. They don't have spare parts and all that, so it's difficult to employ these vehicles in their arsenal without, you know, a great deal of hassle. So it's easier for them to use it as an SVB ID, maybe to greater effect than they would be able to use it in its original role. This is, this is more true for, like, American vehicles, because they're more complex than Russian ones, but uh, it's sort of the same deal. So how do they, if they turn up in an area and, like you said, they, I don't know, they capture an American Humvee or whatever, and they realize they can't really look after it, maintain it, how do they suddenly be able to quickly turn that into a suicide car bomb? You know, the, the territory that IS or ISIS controlled in Syria and Iraq, it's been divided up, up into provinces, or what do you call it, wilayats. I think it was like from the beginning like 20 different uh, provinces, but uh, each province, uh, you know, it, they are responsible for producing car bombs for their battles in their province. So each province has like a 
select committee or group responsible for producing car bombs for that province. All, all different uh, provinces, they have people in charge of uh, deciding where all this you know, stuff captures in battle, where it goes. Do they decide, you know, you know, this brigade over there in that city, oh, yeah, they, have, they lost some vehicles, so maybe they should have this. Or maybe they decide, oh, yeah, just send it to the car bomb guys and they'll turn it into a car bomb. <laughs> so they're like, they're like car bomb, I don't know, ISIS car bomb franchises in each province, essentially. Yeah, but uh, they're all like, uh, how do you say, connected on like a quote-unquote federal level. There's like a ruling committee that decides over them. The quality of car bombs, it will be different in different areas because the amount of resources available in different areas, you know, it varies. So, like resources, they naturally gravitate towards bigger urban centers. In the bigger cities, you'll have more resources and a bigger ability to produce uh, higher quality car bombs. Is, is that why car bombs was such a huge problem uh, in the battle for Mosul. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the same goes for Raqqa, but you know, I don't know much about that offensive. It was pretty like uh, on the download with the media front. But I know in I know in Mosul, like there was so many videos, um, especially the ones where ISIS themselves were filming the car bombs exploding from one of their little commercial drones that they had up in the air. I mean, yeah. it looked to be relentless at one point. Yeah, and I know exactly how many. Because I've counted each and every one of those in all the videos. And there's 130 different uh, video clips from the drones. They were filmed and they were successful. That's the key part. That's like well, at least 130 accurate hits with car bombs in Mosul. I mean, if you look at their official claim for the whole battle, they, uh, I think for the whole battle of Mosul, they claim that they used uh, 482 car bombs. Suicide car bombs, that is. And the Battle of Mosul is also interesting because um, that's where they really like innovated a lot when it comes to um, like developing new types of car bombs and how to counter the anti-car bomb threat. You know, I also wrote this piece about uh, the Battle of Mosul and what, what I noticed when I was doing research for this piece and when I was following the battle itself, it was that when the battle started for, you know, Mosul, IS, they controlled all the, the planes around the city as well. So the, the Iraqis, they started the offensive quite a bit away from the city itself. When the city began, the type of car bomb that IS would use against the Iraqis and Peshmerga and all these forces, they were, they were up-armored car bombs, you know, 4x4 vehicles, trucks, different types of vehicles. But the thing they had in common was that they were all painted in like a desert color, like a sand color, because they were used in areas where a lot of the surroundings were a tan color as well. So they were attempting to blend into the environment in order to, I don't know, minimize detection when they were conducting these operations, because that's when the car bomb is the most vulnerable, when they're attacking in an open area, like the plains outside of Mosul. They were really exposed, like huge open plains where the Iraqis can just, you know, there's a car, aim at it, you know, it's like 500 meters away, just fire away, shoot. So the car bombs were, I think, I don't know, but I think they were less effective in that first stage of the Battle of Mosul. But this phenomenon of 
masking the armor, it would continue when they reached the city itself. So like when they reached the city, it's almost like directly when they reached the outskirts, they would stop using these desert, desert color carbons and instead started using uh, vehicles, you know, up-armored car bombs where the armor had been painted in the same color as the original vehicle. So if you had a white car and you put like huge metal sheets on top of it and maybe steel sheets and all that, then uh, they would paint it, you know, white also. So the armor would blend into the vehicle, which would give it a look of being a civilian vehicle while it was also armored. I refer to these car bombs as camouflaged car bombs. It's like a combination between covert and up-armored car bombs. But they're camouflaged into urban environments, right? I mean, I even saw that you were posting pictures where they even painted tires on to, to look like the armored you know, wheel arch wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, the, there's like three stages of uh, camouflaged car bombs yet. The first stage is just, you know, you have just the armor painted the same color as the car. The second stage is uh, you start painting features onto the car, like windows on the sides and the windshield. The grill is also painted black. The wheelhouse, you'll paint like circular wheel images on top of it. So, you know, it starts to really look like a vehicle. First in eastern Mosul, that's when the stage one was used. And then in western Mosul, after they'd already been fighting in Mosul for a while, they would start using, you know, this, uh, painting the features on the car as well, on top of the armor already being painted in the same color as the car. And do you think this works? Do you think it fooled soldiers? Because, I mean, once it gets close, it's very obvious that that is a big armored vehicle being painted on. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it doesn't have to be extremely effective. Even if it does, even if it, it only reduces the reaction time, of the Iraqis by a second or two, it can be the difference between a successful hit and a failed attack. I mean, the more they do to, the bigger the effort to conceal what they're actually trying to do, I think the bigger chance they have of succeeding. I mean, the IS, they've also, I mean, during the battle of Mosul, they, they were able to infiltrate the front lines. You know, using like uh, these commercial drones, they would be able to see like, oh yeah, here, you know, because when the Iraqis were advancing inside Mosul, they didn't have any natural defenses. It's just like a grid work of streets and alleys, and you know, they, they, they had no idea where IS were. So they, when they advanced into a new area, they would put all their armored vehicles in one, one spot, and then like, uh, like hot-wire civilian vehicles, and take civilian vehicles and placing them as like roadblocks, like 20 different roadblocks around their position. But, like when IS were attacking this, they just used a drone and they were looking like, oh yeah, here's a roadblock, there's a roadblock. But this spot right here, there's only one car protecting it. So they could see on this huge outpost the, the weakness in the defense and would strike there. And the car, you know, the, the car they were using, the car bomb, they would just push the car aside and just drive in there and, you know, destroy all the vehicles. So, so the guys with the, you know, the drones with the GoPros on them, the ISIS guys were using them to coordinate to help these suicide car bomb drivers attack, right? Yeah, I mean, there were guys controlling a drone, watching 
or following the car bomb as it was advancing into enemy territory in Mosul. And this guy was in radio contact with the guy driving the car bomb. You know, so when he was driving in there and conducting his attack, the guy uh, watching the drone feed, he could be like, oh yeah, watch out two streets ahead to the left, there's a guy coming, so turn left here instead and you can come up behind him. You know, it's kind of like that. It would it allowed them to be a lot more mobile in their, how they were attacking and how they were conducting these types of attacks. I mean, and it goes deeper than that. Sometimes, sometimes a lot of the drivers they weren't like native, born in Mosul, but you know, joined IS somewhere else, but ended up in Mosul. So they didn't really know the city. So a lot of the time, where you had like a foreign driver, there would be a local Mosul IS fighter on like a motorbike in front of the vehicle, guiding the car bomb out from the forward height sights. Onto the, onto, onto the front line and before they even conducted the attack the guy, the driver, he would be shown like uh, either satellite imagery or drone images from the target area just so he could really see like yeah I'm gonna take this route up here and then left there and they have defenses there so I'll just take the left and you know kinda like that on top of receiving like live drone feed as he was attacking the guy, uh, the guy's got like a guiding light for you know taken into his little suicide mission, man. Exactly. I mean, in in a lot of the footage they show in the videos, you can see this clearly. I think in one of the video, you can see like a car bomb driving up the road, and further down the road, there's like a roadblock, and behind the roadblock, you have Iraqi vehicles. Instead of just driving straight ahead, the guy turned right onto a side street then just pummeled through like a gate to like a compound, drove through the whole compound and then through another door and just came right on top of the vehicles without them ever noticing that he was attacking them. I think I've seen this. Yeah. Is there an aerial view of this? Exactly. Yeah. I've There's seen drone, this. drone footage from it. Yeah. You can tell this guy is a local. Yeah. Or that he was receiving like direct, uh, you know, the drone feed and someone telling him, no, you can just drive through there. And in terms of, uh, I mean, a guy that says, yeah, I'm going to, you know, get in this car, I'm going to blow everybody up, I'm a suicide car bomber. Um, yeah. How was that person considered by the rest of his, you know, ISIS comrades, if you like? Was that a noble deed or, you know, was that a specifically big thing to do? It's kind of like, I would say, like the ultimate ideal of, a, of an IS fighter is someone who would commit themselves to carrying out an attack like this. I, I remember reading, I've read, I've read a lot about this, it's, um, they used to have huge waiting lines for people wanting to become suicide bombers at the beginning. There were so, so many people signing up to become suicide car bombers that some people were complaining about nepotism within this waiting list, that people who had relatives higher up within IS, they were put first on the list, because they had someone that they knew higher up who could... Uh, you know, get him into a car bomb. For fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, how do you battle these people? You know, how do you get rid of this? Yeah, uh, and I mean, I've seen many types of footage about this. You see, let's say, like, five IS fighters, they're standing in a room, and they're playing, they're literally playing rock, paper, scissors about who is going to be the suicide car bomber. And the guy who wins, everybody just starts screaming and, like, uh, you know, excitedly being really happy for him, and they're just hugging, and then he's like, oh, yeah, bye-bye. 
Like normal fighters kind of get happy when they can come off the front lines and go home for a bit. Like these guys are happy that they're about to go and commit, you know, a horrible atrocity and kill themselves. Yeah, and I mean, not not only is a car bomb a demoralizing effect for their enemies, but it's also a remoralizing effect for their fellow fighters. You know, you know, if an IS fighter sees a car bomb explosion. It will give them like the motivation to continue fighting in a way. It'll help them like uh, gain more confidence in the way they're fighting the battle. Yeah, no, of course, it will egg them on essentially to go and do more. Exactly. And how? Uh, what kind of um, buildings generally were they creating these car bombs in? Was it mostly I don't know old uh, garages or was it just kind of anywhere they could get to? I think pretty much anywhere they would get to. It's, uh, I mean, the only thing they need is, uh, you know, just any type of building. I've seen, actually, there's not a lot of footage from inside car bomb workshops, but all the footage that I've seen have just been like normal buildings large enough to fit a car in and so they can work on it. Usually a little bit larger buildings, but pretty much any building can be, can be converted into a car bomb workshop. For example, in the Battle of Mosul, you had the, I'm not sure if it's the Great or the Grand Mosque, but one of the huge mosques was converted into a carbon factory, just because they were pretty sure that the coalition wouldn't uh, bomb it to shit. Well, (laughs) I mean, what do you even say to that? You know, these guys are out there kind of making fitna, fighting for God, and then they turn the mosque into a carbon factory. Yeah, it's there's a lot of hypocrisy. There is. Uh, so, so I've seen you know in a lot of these images, um, not just on your uh, report, but on, you know all around. I see there are a lot of like I don't know, not gas cylinders, but you know like big barrels, um, those kind of containers, always in the back of these things. Um, yeah. What would they contain? Would that be where the explosives are, or I don't know, what, what are they for? That would be uh, the main payload. Uh, I think some type of. Uh explosive that they put together themselves like anphor or something so like ammonium nitrate fuel oil exactly something like that uh but it can be different types of explosives but usually that's like the where the main payload is in your research was there anything that kind of really surprised you at all about these suicide car bombs i mean just the thing that surprised me the most is just how much effort has been put into this it shouldn't surprise me because it's their most effective weapon as and you know their most commonly used weapon i think it's what everything hinges on that the suicide car bomb without that they wouldn't have the success that they had when they swept across iraq I mean, that, that's the, the, the hallmark of their both offensive and defensive military operations. Just to go back to that, you know, the camouflaged uh, car bombs where they put, you know, they, they painted the armor and they put the features on it. That was stage one and stage two in the Battle of Mosul. But they even continued developing this type of car, uh, car bomb. Like in the Battle of, uh, before the Battle of Raqqa, in, uh, in and around Raqqa before the battle started. Uh, at the time, you know, the Battle of Mosul was still ongoing. But uh, in and around Raqqa, you would start seeing 
at first I, I, I wasn't really understanding what it was I was looking at, but you know, pictures of car bombs, they, they looked like, it really looked like a covert car bomb that they were using on the front lines. And I didn't understand it because it, it didn't make any sense. But then I started studying the pictures a little bit closer and um, it wasn't until I saw pictures of a captured car bomb and uh, they showed like the inner workings of it that I really understood what it was. It's like uh, the third stage of the camouflage car bomb is uh, interior armor. So they've opted instead of mounting steel plates on the outside of the vehicle, they've instead mounted steel plates on the inside of the vehicle. So they have all the original features on the outside, but like on the inside of the doors, you have the steel plates on the inside of the windscreen. Again, the steel plates. And uh, <laughs> what surprised me the most is in the front of the vehicle, they had like cut, they, they even cut off the front of the vehicle in front of the engine, mounted a steel plate in front of the engine, and then reattached the front of the vehicle. It, it's really like insane amounts, you know, the lengths that they go to just to like uh, camouflage the vehicle. It's a hell of a lot of work. So, so basically, um, tell me if I'm wrong. But basically, you're saying the car would look no different to what it would have as a normal car, but they put the armor on the inside so that even if it is shot at, attacked, people try and get at it, it can still be defended until it gets to its ultimate mission. Yeah, and uh, when I saw this type of vehicle, my mind started thinking like, what if this type of vehicle was used in a terror attack in the West against, for example, like a military installation or like a high-profile event? That that's like scary. Yeah, and I think it's, it's very uh, possible as well. You know, we get we get these yeah. people telling us, you know, oh, stop stop worrying about you know terror attacks. It's like, well, actually, you know, these people are very yeah. skilled at what they do, and like you say, they could do that. Yeah, exactly. And at the same time as they're developing, as they were or are developing these camouflaged car bombs, they they also during the battle of Mosul they started like experimenting with uh, like the payloads. Like I said before, they mostly use uh, like IEDs, some anti-tank mines and stuff. But during the Battle of Mosul, I started noticing like they uh, they were aiming or mounting the explosives in weird ways, like mounting anti-tank mines directed forward from the inside of the windscreen or mounted on the driver and passenger doors facing outward, or like the a main payload consisting only of anti-tank mines uh, aimed like at an angle forward and to the sides which shows that you know they're direct they're directing the explosive energy most of it anyway like forward and to the sides and also like using aimed charges like experimenting with IEDs that look like explosively formed penetrators like EFPs really complicated stuff you have a, a metal cylinder and in the bottom, you know, there's the metal, you know, how do you say it, a cap in the bottom. And on the inside you put explosives, and in this metal cylinder, you, how do you say, you weld, there's a metal bowl put with the, like, you know, like a normal bowl, like plates. They're putting that inside the metal cylinder uh, on top of the explosives. So it's like a bowl standing on the explosives. But when that goes off, this like bowl of uh, steel, it 
melts or like liquefies and becomes like a, a beam of molten metal just fired straight at your target. Jesus. So if you're not hit by the blast, you might end up having molten lava on your head. Yeah, I mean, th these type of explosives, they've, they've seen uh, these types of IEDs, like the EFPs. They've cut through some really serious armor on the US armored vehicles during the Iraq war and right now during the war against IS. It's a bit of a dumb question, but what weapon do you think would be best used uh, to tackle these car bombs? I mean, if, if the Iraqi army said, look, we need X weapon to stop all this, what one do you think would be the most effective? I mean, there's no one single weapon that, you know, is the magic anti-car bomb weapon that you can use against it. But um, it depends on the area that you're fighting them in. For example, like uh, out in the open in open territory with only a few villages and stuff. The best weapon against the car bomb is uh, the ATGM, like the anti-tank guided missile, like a tow, tow missile or... They're the most, uh, I would say, the most effective in an open environment. It gets a lot trickier when you're fighting in an urban area like Mosul. And that's, that's like my analysis of the situation also in Mosul is... Uh, is really really difficult sometimes even covert like unmodified civilian vehicles they would park them in civilian houses in the driveways or in the garages like completely hidden in areas where they assumed the Iraqis would advance into and when the Iraqis did that and they were driving just past the house the driver would get into the car either open you know the car door the you know, they would just drive straight down the driveway and into a convoy. It takes three seconds, and then, you know, it detonates. So they have the car bomb basically on the doorstep of the convoy as they pull past. Exactly. And there's no way of checking all these houses and uh, making sure there's no car bombs there before you advance in there. You have to get there and then search the houses. But by that, yeah, it, it's, it's too late. And the fact that IS themselves have kind of the advantage of using... Uh, like commercial quadcopter drones. I think that made a huge difference in Mosul because it allowed them to be much more mobile and, and they could go around the defenses that the Iraqis were using. Even if the Iraqis themselves were using drones, IS had a lot easier time to... It was easier for IS to blend into the environment because the Iraqis were using large convoys and IS were using car bombs that were hidden in houses and like they were not using fixed positions. They could move through the houses, like knocking, you know how they did, like knocking holes in walls, so they have like, not not a block of houses, but one sing single house where you can just walk through it the whole way. Yeah, one street can be, you know, got to end to end without ever leaving for the front door. Exactly. It's so, fascinating, man. I think this has got to be the first time, I mean, I could be wrong, but around these, I don't know, at least the last five years, it's got to be the first time in modern warfare, uh, that you know people have literally been using commercial drones which you could literally buy off of amazon to yeah. guide suicide vehicle borne ieds into you know iraqi forces or whoever it is that's trying to advance it's, it's it's quite incredible to think about it yeah and this is new for Mosul as well because i remember i've watched i think i mean this is not something to brag about but i watched pretty much all is videos released in the last like three years you see a lot of stuff that you wish you didn't see but yeah 
it's for the cause, I guess, the anti-IS cause. You don't work for, you know, a newspaper or a news network or even an investigative journalism kind of agency or anything like that, do you? No. So you did this all off of your own back, which I think is incredibly impressive. Um, can you talk to me yeah. a little bit about your research? What did you do? Um, how did you gather all this information? If you know where to look, it's not that difficult. There are, there are websites, I mean, available to the public. I'm not going to say which website, but you can find pretty much all IS videos uh, released in the last, like, five years, all documented there and sorted. What I did, or what I have done when I'm researching is, uh, I mean, if you're looking through, because IS, they release both videos and photo reports, and not everything featured in the photo reports is included in the videos but it's difficult to look through all the photo reports because they're not documented or archived in, in the same way that the videos are. So what I've been doing is uh, I'm looking through the videos, I'm looking for sections of the video where they use the car bombs and, you know, taking screenshots of that, archiving it, compiling it and analyzing it, sorting it in order to gain some sort of perspective on what they're using, how they're using it, how you can counter it and how successful people have been in countering this type of tactic. And like everything around it, the production, the distribution, the, you know, all the little details I think is interesting because it's not something that anyone else is really looking into. So I, I don't know, I kind of feel obliged to uh, do this research. I'm glad you did. I mean, how many hours do you think it's taken you all together? Oof, many. I mean, from the moment I first started thinking about writing my first article, it took like a year before I started actually writing. I, just, I was just bawling it into, like, around in my head before I got my ass off my, you know, before I got off my ass and started writing. But um, I'm happy I did because uh, I, also th I also think this is really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, it's very fascinating. And it's also something, you know, I make documentaries and I've done news and I, you know, I do love it, but it's, this is something you won't get there. This is an insight you'll never get from, you know, even being on the ground, to be honest, you can't get that because if you're that close to a suicide car bomb on the ground, you know, you're yeah. toast, <laughs> unless it's been captured. Um, exactly. So it's incredible work, man. And I know when I first saw, um, when I first saw your article, it was on WordPress. Uh, how do you pronounce the name of your blog? Uh, Zaitun Arjuani. I think I should change it. It's like the Arabic translation of my previous Twitter handle, Purple Olive. It's like Purple Olive uh, in Arabic. Okay, interesting. Yeah, man, I think, that's, I think that's great, man. And I think carry on doing your work because I think it's incredible. But there's one thing I wanted to ask you, one yeah. more thing, and it's unrelated. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your drawings because I've seen them on Twitter. I've seen you posting them up. Like, what do you take to draw them, man? <laughs> that looks like the insides of a madman. I mean, to be honest, if I'm going to give you a straight answer, it's uh, you don't need to take anything for that. I mean, I, I haven't been drawing that long, to be honest. I consider it more like meditation. It's for like... anyone that hasn't seen these, it's the most incredible abstract... I don't know, it looks like you've just, the pen has hit the paper and there's, you know, some kind of evil spirit has taken control. I think they're really incredible. <laughs> uh, thanks, mate.
So that was Hugo Carmen talking about ISIS and their ingenuity when it comes to blowing people up and causing destruction with car bombs. His work is really, really interesting. Uh, I'd advise you go and check it out. Find him on Twitter at H Carmen. So that is H K A A M A N. Consider supporting us on Patreon. There are popular front bonus episodes now available only to Patreon supporters for $5 a month. That's like three quid or something like that. Uh, For all things popular front, just follow my Twitter. That's Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. As usual, the intro music was by Home. And this week, the outro was by TV America. You can look him up on SoundCloud, TV America, but he's spelled America, A-M-E-R-I-K-W-A. Shouts to the $30 Patreons, Andrew Stover, Joanne Stocker, and Sergei Slipchenko. To be honest, this is a lot of fun, but the fact that I can kind of cover the costs, uh, the server costs and what have you from the Patreon is great. Hopefully, that keeps going and builds up and gets a lot bigger. Um, as I said in the start, we've now got a sponsor, um, that is Defence Post, so look them up, thedefencepost.com, uh, Defence with an S, really good website, um, and you'll find out a lot there on war and conflict. Also, subscribe to my YouTube for various popular front videos, I'm kind of putting up a few things, some old footage, uh, there should be some new stuff soon, that is youtube.com slash TV. It's a stupid URL, but it's the only one I can get.